and welcome to another episode of Positively Pro-Life podcast. Positively Pro-Life is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation and aims to bring you inspirational stories and conversation, important legislative updates and informative interviews as we seek to restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm your host, Ramal Tenney, the Education Director at the Federation, and co-hosting with me today is our Legislative Director, Maria Gallego. Welcome, Maria. It's great to be with you today, Ramal. You've had some adventures, and I'm so glad that you were able to make it in time for our... <laughs> Do you want yeah, to I almost didn't that? get back. I almost didn't get back because my flight was delayed and delayed and delayed and I had to travel another day, but I'm here now, so I'm yeah, grateful. Sure. Yes, uh, and so am I. <laughs> so um, we know that since the fall of Roe, states that have legalized abortions under the guidance, uh, under the guise of healthcare and compassion have taken on a new way to profit from their policies and that is by providing abortion tourism. Virginia is one such state in close proximity to us with their laws permitting abortions up to 26 weeks and six days, and even up to birth in some cases. Abortion tourism jeopardizes the safety of women in neighboring states, leaving them vulnerable to abuse, coercion, and the possibility of abortion trafficking. Our conversation today is with Olivia Gans-Turner, the president of Virginia Society for Human Life, who has been at the forefront of pro-life work in her state as well as nationally for a number of years. But first, our legislative update will be given by Maria Gallico. And as always, it is a very relevant um, update to this conversation that we will be having today. Thank you so much, Remmel. The following is from an open letter to state lawmakers from America's leading pro-life organizations. The mother who aborts her child is also the victim. She is the victim of a callous industry created to take lives, an industry that claims to provide for women's health, but denies the reality that far too many American women suffer devastating physical and psychological damage following abortion. The abortion industry tries to dismiss reports and studies of post-abortive trauma, but even as far back as the 1980s, scientific researchers and the mainstream media were documenting the reality of abortion's consequences. Studies examining the records of over 50,000 California Medicaid patients from 1989 to 1994 found women who underwent abortions experienced 2.6 times more psychiatric admissions in the first 90 days following pregnancy than women who gave birth and 17% higher mental health claims over the following four years. A 1989 Los Angeles Times survey found 56% of women who had abortions felt guilty about them and 26% mostly regretted the abortion. Subsequent studies suggest that these numbers may be low, reporting that adverse emotional and psychological effects are sometimes delayed, not surfacing for five or even 10 years after the abortion. Despite promises from her partner to the contrary, a woman's relationship will often dissolve following an abortion. The clinic staff is gone, and the woman has no desire to return to the place she associates with failure. Even friends who know about the abortion hesitate to bring up the subject. When this happens, she is left to deal with her pain, her doubts, her questions all alone. 
Women are victims of abortion and require our compassion and support, as well as ready access to counseling and social services in the days, weeks, months, and years following an abortion. As national and state pro-life organizations representing tens of millions of pro-life men, women, and children across the country, let us be clear. We state unequivocally that we do not support any measure seeking to criminalize or punish women, and we stand firmly opposed to include such penalties in legislation. Remmel. Thank you for that update. That is a very strong statement and one that um, gives us a lot of information about the dangers that women are facing because of the abortion industry. And it is quite providential that today we, our guest is Olivia Gans-Turner, who has been fighting to save lives for decades now. One of the founding members of Women Exploited by Abortion in 1983, she helped organize one of the nation's first peer-to-peer post-abortion support groups in the New York City area after her own abortion experience. She has traveled extensively over 17 countries in all 50 states in the United States of America to speak on post-abortion syndrome and other abortion-related issues. Her recent talk at the National Right to Life Convention was called When the Shouting Stops, and it laid out how post-abortive trauma is displayed by those on the other side. I'm really excited to have her join us to speak about it, as well as to help us understand what's been happening in Virginia lately. So welcome to the podcast, Olivia. It's so wonderful to have been asked by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Coalition to come up and do this. This is such a good opportunity for us to talk about what's going on in our society and our culture. And Remel, it was great to meet you at the convention and always good to see you, Maria. So thank you very much, Pennsylvania, for this opportunity to really have a a better in-depth conversation on this critical conversation you know, really critical moment uh, in our history as a country. Yeah. So, I mean, we're neighbors and I think, I think a lot of what <laughs> we do affects each other. So I'm really glad that you're here with us today. And um, just want to start off with how I really enjoyed your, enjoyed your talk um, about when the shouting stops. And uh, I just wanted to, I mean, we, we heard the legislative update, um, but could you tell us in your own experience and from the years that you've worked, um, how real is post-abortion trauma or stress and, and how does it come up uh, for a lot of women? It is very real. It is also so much a political hot button, hot potato issue that uh, women are being left in the dust really of the conversation because not only do we not want to talk about the millions of children who are being killed by the violence of abortion, we don't really want to know what happens in the lives of women afterwards. Because if we, as I've said for, for decades now, if if we actually were to seriously take into account some of the data that Maria shared earlier, and that even is broader than that, uh, that uh, Dr. Wanda Franz and I shared in one of our workshops the last couple of years at the convention, we would have to ask ourselves the question, if abortion is obviously bad for our children because it kills them, and it's also hurting women, either physically or emotionally, psychologically, then we have to ask the big question, who is abortion good for? Who benefits from the ongoing continued practice of abortion in our country? And tragically, obviously, that points us back to the industry, to the businesses that exist in our country that prey on women in vulnerable moments of their lives and suggest that the wisest, kindest thing they can do 
from themselves and their children is to pay them to kill those babies. So that's kind of where we stand. And so, yes, it's very real. Uh, I have spoken in all 50 states and in 17 countries abroad. And it's fascinating to me how similar the stories are. Even when I've been in other countries where I've needed an interpreter to do my lecture and help me you know, get communicate to the audience, it's not at all uncommon for me to have women come up privately, quietly at the end of those events in other countries and say to me, I didn't think you were allowed to talk about these things out loud. So the silence that has been imposed on our lives because of our abortions. My own was in 1981. I got involved in the pro-life movement in 1982, just as we were beginning to talk about the effect of abortion in women's psychological lives. There was a small amount of information about the physical damage. And I can honestly tell you that everything that we now know about what abortion can do to the well-being of women is something that has been lived by millions of women around the world. And we have to start wrestling as a country, as a culture, as a society, uh, historically, with what did Roe v. Wade actually do? And what is it continuing to do? And what it will continue to do going forward? Because as we battle these issues legally in our legislatures, we're going to see the continued triggering and the continued damage caused by the fallout of Roe v. Wade. I was wondering if you could tell us how should we respond to those who are hurting? Because I think that sometimes we feel as if we are at a loss. I know one time I was on a religious retreat weekend and there happened to be a woman there who started out her talk um, talking about her abortion experience and it became very emotional for her. And, and I really didn't know what to do next. So can you help us with that? Oh, Maria, that is such a good, good question. And I get asked this so often. And I have to say, the most simple answer is you're talking to someone who's grieving. And so your response to that grief would be, I hope, the same compassionate response you would try to have to someone that tells you their mother just died, or their brother-in-law just passed away, or their little sister has just died. You're talking to someone who's in extraordinary pain because of the loss of a life, a life very dear to them. And unfortunately, in the case of abortion, a life that they know they had some responsibility for ending. So even if we're talking about somebody who had an abortion at 13 because their angry father dragged them to an abortion facility to get the abortion done, that woman who is now 35 will still feel a sense of responsibility for the event that took place because that's the nature of motherhood. And we would look at her and say, but my darling, you were a child, you were 13. But I think the answer is very simply kindness. You respond with kindness and you respond and people who, who have family members or loved ones, the initial outpouring of someone's honesty, when they tell you the full nature of their life experience and their reality of what the abortion was and how it happened and everything that they remember about it is simply a moment in time where instead of Pro-lifers are kind of prone to this, I know, from decades. We have a lot of facts and figures. We have a lot of information. We even know where the help is available. That's not what's necessary many times. It's mostly just listen to her. Just say, I'm so grateful for your honesty. Thank you for sharing with me the truth of your life experience connected to this abortion. And know that whatever happens, you matter to me more than any of the other issues that might have been connected. 
your experience, your, you are beautiful to me and your honesty makes me humble because for us to find the courage and you were in a setting where it was public and she was talking to lots and lots of people. But I think sometimes people are talking about a private moment. I know pro-lifers often say, well, I'm at a fair booth. I'm at a church festival and somebody walks up to me and they say, I've had an abortion and no one in my family knows. Well, drop everything, drop everything you were about to say and look into the eyes of that person and say, would you like to tell me more? Can I help you? Can I listen? Because it's a moment of incredible intimacy and incredible honesty. And I would say one quick thing about the idea of, of public testimony. I'm very, very cautious about it. Um, many people know connected to NRLC that I've been reluctant to just randomly grab women and say, can you give a testimony? So I think many of us are still in a place of really needing help and healing. And so public testimony should be entered into very, very carefully. You need to, if you're an organizer or a state or county group, you need to make sure that person has a support system. They have an ongoing counsel, someone that they can be available to them as a, a counselor or guide. Um, public testimony takes a lot from us. And to constantly stand on a stage and tell people how foolish I was in 1981 and how sad I am that I paid that abortionist to perform the death of my own child, you have to be in a healthy place. So what you were witnessing, I think, might have been somebody who probably might have needed to have more time with a good post-abortion care service or counseling. Yes. Uh, and I think uh, you, I mean, in your talk, you also talked about how a lot of people that are grieving um, or who have not yet reached the grieving stage, it comes out as shouting and anger and uh, just rage against people like us who are, who say that abortion is wrong. Um, so I, my question is, how do you effectively engage in conversation with, with someone who's hurting, but is shouting? I think the simple thing there again is it's, it's another form of that intimacy. That person is expressing to you uh, their pain, their stress connected to an event. And Dobbs, the ruling has triggered a phenomenal amount of pain and a phenomenal amount of fear. I think that's why the pro-abortion side has been so successful at creating these events where there's a lot of shouting and rather bizarre behavior going on in front of our Supreme Court justices' houses, all that strange stuff that pro-lifers have seen and have been a little distressed by. Uh, I think we need to realize that Dobbs itself and the manipulation of pro-abortion groups saying, oh my goodness gracious, they're gonna round you up and throw you in prison is, is so effective with people who quietly, privately at four o'clock in the morning may still be crying about something that happened 25 years earlier. And no one in their family knows, nobody, nobody they don't. And if they do talk to anybody, they are surrounded by people who may reinforce the decision by saying, but it was the only thing you could do. Your spouse was not reliable. You didn't have a job. You were a student, whatever the storyline is. And to suddenly feel like there's something else that might happen to them as a result of this action that they've never been really totally comfortable with is very triggering. And so, Maria, when you said that the data indicates five to 10 years, I would say the data can in indicate in some studies as long as 25, 30 years. I have encountered women who are entering menopause and who had their abortions as college students, and now they're nearly 50. And it's just and they never had other children. And maybe that's the trigger for them is that, oh my gosh, I thought I'd someday have other children and the circumstances of my life didn't follow through on that. 
So that was my one and only child. And I paid to have that child killed. Believe me, uh, there's no timeline on when post-abortion stress manifests or when we see the, 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 the falling apart of this individual's kind of reinforced rationalization that they have imposed on themselves. So the shouting is very much a, another effort to reinforce a rationalization that I made the right decision, a good decision, a sensible decision. I myself was told by four different abortion providers before my abortion in 1981 that I was stupid, childish, selfish, irrational, and unable to think clearly because I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. A version of those phrases was used in each of the environments we had to go to to find somebody we could afford. Well, if you've been told that kind of thing, and many of us were, then you will do everything in your power to kind of create a sense of stability and rationalization in your life. So that's what we're seeing with the shouting. We're seeing people in, in distress, being manipulated. We're being people being lied to. Uh, Maria and I both know that none of the laws that are being put forward would punish women. It was so great to have you read that letter at the beginning of the podcast, Maria. I've used it myself in testimony here in our state legislature and other places because it has never been the goal of the pro-life movement to punish women. That is why I was successfully comfortable working at National Right to Life for all the years that I had, because I knew there was a welcomeness to our life experiences and the tragedy of what abortion was doing to us. So we can do a lot more to help assuage that pain. If we, if we encounter people who are shouting, don't shout back, don't get a megaphone, don't stand there and say, but late babies have lives too. That's completely useless and dangerous because it, it indicates to me that you're traumatized too, that you're traumatized by all these years of abortion. So our entire culture needs to step back, try to listen to each other, and try to really care about the people we're talking to on both sides. And I know, I know I was very guilty of that. When I was starting out in the pro-life movement, my motivation was I wanted to save the lives of babies. Mm -hmm. And I was very zealous in that. And I, I made a, a lot of... Um, wrong decisions in, in terms of how to interact with people. And, and I'm wondering what advice you can give us um, for talking with uh, someone who has had an abortion. What would you like to share with that woman? I think the most important thing to share is that her experience matters to me. Wherever she finds herself right now, however she got to where she is, I won't dismiss that. And really, really, one of the things about the damage done by abortion is it robs women of a sense of their own strength, their own intelligence, their own dignity, because it suggests in many ways that being pregnant in the first place was some kind of thing that had gone wrong, a problem that needed to be solved. And so I put aside, to be honest, I often put tell people, like people, put aside the baby for a minute, not because you're going to forget about her child. You're going to, we're going to get there. But first and foremost, she needs to be seen. I wasn't seen. I wasn't heard when I was approaching people for my abortion on February 27th, 1981. That date is with me forever as it is with most women. And as a result of that, I, I know that one of the most powerful things was being seen and listened to and cared about by people like Dr. Wanda Franz and Dr. Vincent Rue and others who I encountered in my early journey into the pro-life movement. And there was a welcomeness. There was like, well, we don't know everything about your story and your experience, but you matter. You, not your baby's death, not how that, that's, that's part of your story, but you are important. 
and what you think about and worry about and are, are frightened of or want to do next, that matters. And so it's very hard sometimes for us because we're so, and we have to be, we have to bring the baby forward. But I guarantee you, if you can help the wounded people in your circle that you encounter, either in family life, church life, public life, if you can just momentarily say, you know, I always appreciate your honesty, the way you're so honest with me about your concerns. Start there. And just let them know that you're not, you're registering them independent of everything else. And that's hard to do because we want them to see the baby and get to the point where they can grieve and heal and all that. If you've ever walked through the shadow of death with somebody who's lost a loved one, you know that you cannot take them where you think they ought to be until they are able to go there. And the same is true for people who have been involved with abortions, mothers and fathers. Does that help a little bit? It, it does. Thank you. Yes, I think that was oh, very, very insightful. But I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. And we're going to come back to Virginia. Um, we talked about earlier in our, in our introduction. So we know that Virginia allows abortions in the first and second trimesters. And even beyond that, uh, uh, it is still it is available. So can you tell us how that is uh, forming Virginia to be the next abortion tourism state? Well, first and foremost, I thought about emailing you back on that question, Remmel, but I'm going to uh, correct both of you and say, please never, ever refer to it as abortion tourism again, because we've just talked about the enormous trauma and tragedy, even women who defiantly tell you, but I had an abortion because I, I know it was the right thing for me to do. When you scratch their story, as I have, you find out the rest of the back, the back story. So there's no such thing as a woman who gleefully, willingly hop, skips, and jumps over state lines to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. That is not correct. There is such a thing as an abortion destination state. And we are now a destination state for the body of the Southern states. They are making that clear. The pro-abortion groups are advertising Virginia as such. And so we have become a destination state. And it is a tragedy uh, because they, there are organizations popping up along our borders in Virginia uh, openly advertising into our neighboring states that they will help pay for and fund for travel, et cetera, for women, including minor age girls to come into Virginia and get their abortions. So that's a, a great example of the exploitation that the industry is responsible for. The abortion industry makes no, but they don't do any of this for free. Unlike the 41 mother helping centers that exist in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I know they exist all over Pennsylvania as well, those mother helping centers, those pregnancy resource centers operate completely free of charge. No questions of asked of any pregnant individual that walks to the door. Uh, and so the difference is money. It's all money. And so there is exploitation going on, and it's preying on stress and fear. So um, I think when you say, what is Virginia doing? Well, right now in Virginia, we're running elections. We have off-year elections. So uh, if you're a praying person listening to this podcast, please pray that we get more pro-lifers elected into our General Assembly. We have a pro-life governor who is willing to sign pro-life laws if we can just get them to his desk. So the biggest thing that I see with regard to, because I'm, I'm both and, I work with trying to provide care and support to people in crisis and pregnancy and post-abortion, but I'm also very aware that if you don't fix the laws, if you don't, if you don't have people in authority elected to office who are willing to and capable of moving the law in the right direction to provide greater protections for mothers and their children, you're never going to see a change here. We're going to see the same 
ugly gamesmanship going on by the pro-abortion side. So for Virginia, um, what we're doing is is we're, we have to get, we can't do really anything until we change our electoral situation in our General Assembly. Um, but we have great candidates and we're going to do that. For other states, I would say look at laws that I know the National Right to Life has great resources. They've developed some laws that I think some states that can do this are going to be looking at as far as trafficking and the potential for trafficking. When we have people in place, I know that there are conversations and our governor is very committed to addressing the issue of trafficking. And from my point of view, deliberately advertising into our neighboring states how you can get around the laws in your states and come to Virginia creates a kind of trafficking potential that we cannot ignore. So it's all a question of who are you voting for? Who are you giving authority to, to fix these dangerous hot points that have been created since Dobbs? So we have a lot of work ahead of us. And I think that applies to all the states that like Pennsylvania, like Virginia, like Maryland, like all the states and different parts of the country that tend have have been leaning blue or leaning pro-abortion. We've got just a couple minutes left, and I'm wondering if you can share with us, what is your hope for our country moving forward? My hope is that all of us would begin to realize slowly, carefully, intelligently, the enormous human toll and trauma that has affected our entire society at every level. One of the things I don't think people think about, I don't even think pro-life people think about this sometimes, or religious people who sit in churches, how close they are to someone who's had an abortion experience. You go sing in the choir every Sunday with someone who is the grandmother of a child who died by abortion, and they know their grandchild is dead. You uh, play golf with someone who may have paid for a couple of abortions when he was a college student. You are around, you have nieces, nephews, cousins, best friends, old chums, new chums, all around you who have had abortion experiences. So the wound is very deep. And in order for, I think, our culture to move forward and our society to move forward is to have these kinds of conversations about the need for compassion, the need for understanding, the need for concern, uh, um, that you know we, we aren't just the people who care about the babies. We never have been. Uh, and yet it's easy for the pro-abortion movement to create that mythology. They've done a good job of it for decades. So I think all of us, perhaps in our conversations now, need to lead. Uh, Marie, you asked before, how do you do these things? I always lead with the mother. In this day and age, I lead with her. I always lead with, you know, you know, I'm deeply concerned about issues like um, Virginia, in Virginia, the issue of uh, um uh, maternal mortality and morbidity is a big one right now. Obviously, we have a large mixed population in Virginia. Uh, and so I always lead with that. That uh, you know, as a woman, I'm deeply concerned that simply providing abortion and not expressing a real avenue to changing our access to medical care for lower income women or women of minority backgrounds is a, is not a successful path in post-Dobbs world. And so we're going to have to leave it right there. Thank yes, you so very much, Olivia Gans Turner. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life. Thanks for having me. Thank you.